Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them the word of the Lord is good. Amen. And it's good to see Pastor Ray and Nancy here. Y'all stand up and wave. They're not usually in here. Okay. Even they need a break every once in a while. So let's, uh, let's begin this part six. So it took us six weeks to get through three chapters. That's about right. That's good. You could, you could park for a year on chapter one if you wanted to, but we're not going to do that. Now, tonight we're going to look at one of my favorite passages at the very end, Ephesians 3.20, that he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask for or even think of. But right now, I'm getting too loud here again, guys. I'm sorry. It's blasting me. Okay. Now, last time we talked about boldness in prayer. Remember that? Can you believe it's been a week since we were last here? We talked about boldness in prayer, and we ended with Ephesians 3, verses 12 to 13, and here they are, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. We talked about that incredible access that we have because of the blood of the Lamb to the throne room of God, a pathway cut for us, okay? Then he says, therefore, I ask that you don't lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now, Paul next launches into a moment of prayerful appreciation for God's incredible blessing. So here he goes. He's about to thank the Lord now. So he says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So that's, that's a burst of thanksgiving. Now, he begins this prayer with the words, for this reason, because he's about to pray for the Ephesian church, and it's a major prayer. So he begins it with a, for this reason. Now, for this reason is the same thing as therefore. When you see a therefore, you've got to see what it's there for. When you see for this reason, then you know something was just said that is making him say, in light of that, and then he goes on. So in light of that, so it's probably the that or what he's referring to is his reference to the incredible Gentile Christian's destiny to reveal God's plan to spiritual beings in heavenly places. I mean, that's just too much for my mind that angels, both good and evil, didn't understand some things until the Gentiles received the gospel and received the wisdom of God that came through Paul and the other apostles. And when the early Gentile church learned it, they learned it. It tells us that angels don't know everything. Angels have limited knowledge, but not God. Can I tell you this? Satan has limited knowledge. He is not omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. He's not. He's not everywhere. He's not all powerful. He doesn't know everything. There's things he wishes he knew that he doesn't know. Okay? But God knows everything, and so does Christ Jesus, of course, and the Holy Spirit, the three in one. So that's what he's referring to when he says, for this reason, what God has done with the Gentiles, for this reason I bow my knee and I give praise to God. Then he launches into the specifics of his prayer. Now, we're going to look at the prayer of Paul, and I've got to ask you, what he prayed for the Ephesian church, was that also good for us? Oh, yeah. What, what, what he prayed for the Ephesian church 
He, he prayed for all the churches. This was what the Holy Spirit put on his heart to pray for the churches. So here it goes. He says in verse 16 and 17a, and when we see a 17a and a 17b, that just means the verse is cut in half, and we're dealing with that verse in halves. So verse 16 through the first half of verse 17. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Wow. I want you to notice that Paul's confidence in God's ability to answer prayer abundantly is because of his glorious riches. I want you to say with me, our God is not poor. Oh, no, not even close. He created silver. He created gold. It is he who gives us power to make wealth. It all comes from him. So Paul is, and I'm not just talking about material things, but according to God's glorious riches, both material and spiritual, he is able to answer your prayer abundantly. This means fabulous wealth unfathomable resources, unimaginable riches, and the power that they create. I want you to read this last part with me good and loud like you're the one preaching, okay? You ready? Our God has riches, both spiritual and material, beyond imagining. That's what he's telling us right there. According to his great Riches, he's able to abundantly, stunningly, amazingly, overwhelmingly answer your prayer. He never says, oops, I'm out. Uh Uh-uh. You know, so often we pray out of our own lack of faith, don't we? I I, I do. I I do all the time. I hate to admit it, but I'm sure I do. I, I don't pray with the illumination Paul wishes we all had and prayed that we would all get that we're going to look at in a moment. But so often we pray out of a lack of faith, out of our own spiritual poverty. We can't imagine that God really does have what we need. Instead, we should learn to pray based on our understanding of God's inexhaustible supply. That's what Paul is praying. He's praying, I pray that you get it, that you come to understanding that God has got everything you need and then some and super abundantly above all that. The Bible says in Psalms 50 verse 10, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He says in Haggai 2.8, God speaking, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. He owns Wall Street. God owns all the stocks. See, you and I are under a delusion if we think we own anything. You say, well, Pastor Jeff, my name's on the deed. Yeah, but you can lose it in the night. It is held together by God. God's really the ultimate owner. What we are is stewards of what he's trusted us with. We don't own anything. I mean, you may, on a, like I said, on a title deed, but really and truly you don't own it because God can go poof and it's gone. He allows us to have it for now But folks, everything we have, it's a trust. My car is a trust. My house is a trust. This church is a trust. Everything we have is a trust. The clothes we wear tonight, it's trust. And and we're going to answer for what we did with it. But that's another teaching. That's another message. But we are going to answer for how 
good or bad a steward we were over what he's trusted us with. Okay? Now, when we can see that in our mind's eye, when we can see this, our faith can rise to the occasion without worrying about how God will ever be able to answer our prayer. So isn't it important what we believe about God? See? Right, it is. It's crucial what you believe about God. If you believe that God is angry, steam coming out of his ears, furrowed brow, just waiting for you to make a mistake so he can step on you like a roach, then you know what you're going to be? You're going to be afraid of God. Not the fear of the Lord. That's respect. But afraid of God. And you're going to picture him as a miser. But when you realize that he gives us richly all things to enjoy, and he, Jesus said, fear not, little flock, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Well, then we come to his throne boldly and say, Lord, here's what I need, and I know you've got it. And here's what I need. I'm going to get this CD. This is already blessing me tonight. I just love teaching this because it's so true, folks. We need to have our eyes open. Now, um, he goes on to pray, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, let's look at some words. Words are important. I always tell you that, especially Bible words. The word dwell comes from a Greek word that means to live, to reside, to settle down. Like you buy a house and you settle down. You buy a house and you stay there for 30 years. You settle down. You're no longer floating around going from place to place. You settle. Now, he uses the word dwell as opposed to the idea of pitching a tent or an occasional visit. You know how you go to camp out, you pitch a tent, but you know that tent's coming down in a couple of nights. So you're only there temporarily. He uses the word dwell instead of something temporary. Here's what he's telling us. That the Spirit's inner strengthening is the same thing as Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. He's telling us that I pray that you will experience the continual dwelling, that God will, will make his, himself at home, that he will dwell in you consistently, continually, ongoingly, instead of just uh, us experience an occasional visit. You know, sometimes, some people, the only time they ever have any experience with God is when they come to church. They come to church and they worship, they listen to the message, they go home, and the rest of the week it's sort of like hanging on to survive. And, and they haven't yet learned to get with God in the morning while the dew is still on the grass, before the TV's on and the radio's on and all these various things are happening to distract you. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. I almost said lily. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. You learn to get with him every day, and, and there is, I'm here to stay. I'm experiencing you daily. I am dwelling with you daily. I'm experiencing your presence daily, hourly. You're experiencing his strength. And that's just learning to abide. John 15, 5. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. We're, we're abiding. doesn't take much to abide. Just get to, with the vine and, and hang there. Just spend some time with him and hang there. 
Before you know it, you're bearing the fruit that's in the vine. So let's recap so far. Paul has described a Christian's relationship to God by two things, being empowered by the Spirit in the inner person and by Christ dwelling in your heart by faith, dwelling there, living there by faith on an hourly basis. Now he adds a third, by being rooted and grounded in love. Now, let's read it. Here's 17b through 18, chapter 3. I pray that you being rooted, let's read this together, everybody. And I pray that you being rooted and grounded in love may have what? Power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I'll receive that prayer. I'll receive the answer to that prayer. What a prayer. And got to remember that came straight from the fount of the Holy Spirit in him. Now, he continues, ready? And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. Remember I told you, Pauline writing, and it was by the Spirit, but his writing, there's comma after, there's no, no commas in the Greek, but when it's translated into English, it's comma after comma after comma, paragraph after paragraph. He writes the longest sentences in the Bible because it's just flowing up out of him. He can't stop. Now, the word rooted, that you would be rooted and grounded in love. The word rooted refers to a tree whose roots grow deeper and spread more widely into the soil. You remember Psalms 1, that the person who meditates in the the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord day and night, shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, It says, they bring forth their fruit in their season. Their leaf does not wither and whatever they do prospers. And the idea is that tree has put down deep, deep roots. He said, I want you to be rooted like a tree whose roots go way down and spread way out underground so that when the harsh winds of life blow in church, they will and they do. You can count on it. The tree is not uprooted because the roots are deep. Well, there are some Christians, I watch them. Their roots are about yay deep. And one little hot breeze, and they're taking up their marbles and going home. Well, I've had all that fun I can stand. I'm going to go hug a tree or become a Buddhist. And Jesus talked about those people. The four seeds in Matthew 13. The word of the Lord. The seed that goes by the wayside. It's the enemy comes and picks it up and eats it before it even has a chance to go down into the soil. The seed that goes down but doesn't get deep roots and persecution and trouble arises because of the word and that seed is scorched and it doesn't bring forth fruit. Then there's a seed that goes down and and bears roots, but the cares of this world and all the worries of life choke that seed and it becomes unfruitful. That's three out of three. Three fates of the seed in someone's life that are not good. But then there's a fourth, the seed that goes into good ground and that brings forth fruit, some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. That's in Matthew 13, first parable Jesus preached, and it's the first message I ever preached was out of Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. In my life, that was my first teaching. So 
The roots need to go deep so that when the hot winds of life, the adversities of life blow, we don't cave, we don't walk away, we don't defect. God doesn't want to see your backside. You ever notice that the armor of God is only good if you're facing the enemy? If you're running, there ain't nothing protecting your backside. It's all for this way. Have you ever thought about that? (laughs) All right. So rooted is an agrarian term. Now, when he says grounded, that's a construction term. And it refers to the foundation of a building on which everything else rests. That We're sitting right now on the foundation of this building. This building is only as good as this foundation. If this foundation is cracked, if it's weak, if it's compromised, then this whole building is going to collapse because the foundation is bad. The foundation is crucial. Why are we in the Word on Wednesday nights? I'm laying foundation. I want your foundation to be Christ Jesus. Jesus said, no other foundation can be laid than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3. So it's a construction term, the foundation of a building on which everything else rests. I want you rooted, deep roots, and I want your foundation solid like cement, And both of those things, I want them in love. He says that our roots grow deep, our foundation becomes solid and strong in the atmosphere and the soil of love. Everybody say love. It's the only thing the Beatles ever had right, but I'm going to tell you, they didn't have the real source. Do you remember? All you need is? Okay. That was wishy-washy because, as you notice, the hippie movement went real sour and there was a lot of hate. They were right, but they didn't have any source for it. Because we can't love like we need to without Jesus Christ. Half the time, tell the truth. You want to whoop somebody and not love them. Okay? In rush hour traffic, don't tell me you're all full of love. Oh, God bless you for going so slow in a fast lane. I love you. That doesn't happen, does it? You want to call down the wrath of God on them, Lord. Now, he says that, that the roots... And the foundation happen best in the atmosphere of love. That's what he's saying. It happens best in the atmosphere of love. Rooted and grounded in love. Can we say that together? Rooted and grounded in love. Not legalism, not religion, but love. And the love of God. Agape, agapao, God's love. So God wants the church to learn to walk in love more and more because that's the condition in which spiritual growth happens. That's what's supposed to be going on in local church, like this one, that love ought to be increasing. And when there is an atmosphere of love, then we grow roots and we get the foundation laid. Anything else, no real root growth and no real good foundation. If I have not love, I've become like a clanging cymbal. Can you imagine the drummer just getting up here and slamming on the cymbal? That'd get old in about 15 seconds. But without love, that's what the Christian sounds like and feels like and looks like. Now, in the next verse, Paul expands even further on the subject of love. Look at this. Verse 18. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints... What is the width and length and depth and height of what? Of what? What does he say? The love of Christ. 
He said, I want you to know the width of it, the length of it, the depth of it, the height of it. And the love that I'm talking to you about, you can't even intellectually comprehend. It's beyond knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, notice this phrase, that you may be able to comprehend. Do you see that in the beginning of the verse 18? The phrase that you may be able to comprehend can also read that you may have power to grasp. You may have power to grasp. It's a phrase with two verbs. The first verb means to be fully capable of doing or experiencing something, to be strong enough to experience something, capable of experiencing it. The second verb involves the imagery of chasing somebody and seizing them. So it paints the picture of chasing down a concept or chasing down a truth in order to fully grasp and understand it. Now, I told you this was a little deep tonight, but let me tell you something about everybody in this room, everyone in here, and everybody watching, everybody listening by radio, everyone is chasing after something in your life, everybody. And you know what makes you chase whatever it is you chase? Whatever you treasure most. Whatever you treasure most is what you're chasing after, okay? Whatever you treasure most That's what you're chasing and pursuing in life. Paul is praying literally that the church would chase and pursue understanding and grasping the fullness of the love of Christ. Because to grasp it and to understand it is to assimilate it and exude it. He's praying that we would have the power to grasp. How many of you remember in school when you ran up against geometry or algebra and you tried to grasp that thing? (laughs) Do you remember that? And and if you were a believer back then, you prayed, oh, God, please, please help me to understand this. I I quit college once because I was taking a class. I could not understand what they were going through because I had no high school and I couldn't get it. And I got frustrated. They were making me do it so I could get my degree. So I picked up my marbles and went home. But, you know, I learned you can't run from God's will. He'll let you sit there for a while and say, now get back and do what I told you to do in the first place. So I went back, and this time I was praying, oh, God, give me understanding. Make me a genius. (laughs) And, And you know what? I ended up with an A in it. I ended up with an A in it. What made me leave college? I ended up with an A in it. Because I really do believe he somehow expanded my brain. Now, what we're talking about here is supernatural ability to grasp spiritual things. You have no need that any man teach you, John said. But the same anointing that you have received teaches you all things and brings to your remembrance all things that Jesus said. So do you know what? You have inside of you the greatest teacher that ever lived. What did they call Jesus? The teacher. The rabbi. That's what they called him. No man speaks like this man. No man teaches like this man. And people would listen to Jesus and the light would come on. And they would say, wow. I never saw that because he spoke in parables with simple everyday 
day-to-day life stuff that everybody could get. And he shared a profound truth with simple parables. But even so, he talked over and over again about different people who were not able to understand it. Because there are certain things God's got to open your understanding. And, pray, and Paul is praying that our understanding would be opened up supernaturally so that we can understand the love of Christ. Width, height, depth, breadth. Because it's a mind blower when you think about the love of Christ. Let me give you an example. How can the Lord Jesus Christ love those who are his enemies? How, are, how can we love our enemies? I need understanding, supernatural understanding for that. I've thought about the love of God. God sends his only son who holds out his hands and his feet and they nail him to a cross, unrecognizable, beaten beyond recognition, don't even know who he is, his mother down there, his friends down there, an angry mob that just a a week before had been saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And God gave his only son while we were spitting on him. I can't grasp that. I can accept it by faith. Because I want your I want you to understand to be open supernaturally that you get the breadth, height, width, and depth. It's got to come from revelation. But you've got revelation in you. The Holy Spirit can give you divine revelation. Or how could, you know, how could, and I'll just put it in a different way here. How could God send his only begotten son into a den of serpents to redeem them? Anytime my children went off into a dangerous area, I wanted to go protect them, deliver them, get them out of there. God sent his only son to die for us, to live among us. It was a den of serpents. He came to his own, and his own received him not. He came to his own, they didn't even receive him. Den of serpents. They were his enemies. So to the natural mind, it doesn't make sense. It's truly mind-blowing. He says as much with this phrase. He says in verse 19, first half of 19, it's love that surpasses knowledge. I can't grasp the love of God. I love the love of God. The love of God is what won me. When I felt his love on my heart by the Holy Ghost, he had me. But I only love him because he first loved me. And so do you. You didn't find Jesus. He found you. Yes, I did, Pastor Jeff. It was my brilliant intellectual pursuit of all truth, and I happened upon a revelation and realization that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You'd have been as lost as a goose in a hailstorm as of tonight if he had not come to you and said, you are in sin. My son died for you. He convicted you of sin. And only because of that are you saved tonight. We don't like to hear that, but it's the truth. We cannot, with our limited human understanding, wrap our minds around the love of Christ. So Paul prays that we might experience what everybody the power to grasp. But he doesn't just pray that we might get it. He prays that we might grasp the extent of it, the width, length, height, and depth. Now let me ask you a question. Having been in church for a while, has the church experienced this? 
Let me put it another way. Have you ever been disappointed in the love of Christ that is supposed to be in the church? Y'all are not even giving me a, a nod. I got a case of the no nods tonight. Not this and not this. How many, let me put it this way. How many of you ever realized we really fall short of the love of Christ in the church? But how many of you can also say we can grow and we will grow? And how many of you are glad to say I'm not what I ought to be today, but I'm sure not what I used to be and I'm not what I'm going to be? All right. Amen. Now, you can tell a lot about a person by what they're pursuing in life. I've already been through this, but are they pursuing material riches or are they pursuing the riches of Christ? I can spend 10 minutes with somebody, and it doesn't take me but 10 minutes to pretty much figure out what they're chasing after in life. Some people chase after sex. I want sex. I want to have sex with as many people as I can. I want to get out there and I'm just going to, I just, I'm after sensual living, hedonism. There's other people who want money, honey. Their whole pursuit is to make a whole bunch of money thinking that once they get that money, they're going to be happy and they aren't because money can't make you happy. Now it can make things easier, but I've known too many people, too many rich people that I've personally known. And I've read about a whole bunch of them who have all the money. They can't spend it all, but they are miserable people because money doesn't bring you happiness. Let me tell you what brings you happiness. Getting right with God. That's what brings happiness. Because when you make peace with God, you experience the peace of God. And it's like a homecoming. You didn't know it, but you were lost and wandering and walking through the woods of sin and darkness in this world. And, and, and God sends the Holy Spirit into that deep, dark forest to find you. And he walks up to you and says, you need to come to him. You're lost. You can't find your way out. And you respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he leads you out of the forest into the light of day. And, when you, and then you realize, wow, I have found home. Abba, Father. I'm home. And that's when you get happy. Happiness is an inside job. It is not something that happens out here. Matter of fact, happiness is from a Latin word meaning happening. It means I need a happening to make me happy. But the believer doesn't need a happening to make them happy. Because the believer has gotten right with God, and so that spring of eternal life is flowing up towards heaven, flowing up out of them on the inside, so they can be going through hell out here, but still experience joy in here. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Now, Jesus said, wherever a man's treasure is, that's where you're going to find his heart. What is your primary pursuit in life? Money? Hedonism? Worldly things, fame, attention, or is it the kingdom of God? Matthew six thirty three. seek ye first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things that the Gentiles are chasing after that they think are going to make them happy are going to be added to you as a side benefit of seeking God first. Now, Paul told Timothy what to pursue. I love this. 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, he says, flee the evil desires of youth and do what? Pursue. What, everybody? Read it with me. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace 
along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. That's what we're to chase after. And you could write, take those four words and just put them in a blender and hit liquefy and pour it out, and it's Jesus. Okay? Now, closing out chapter 3, we come to the result we will experience as these things become ours. As we do what he just said, if we experience the answer to Paul's prayer, here's going to be the result. Read it with me, verse 19b, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He doesn't want the believers to be half-filled, filled on Sundays, filled by default, filled by mistake. He wants believers filled all the time. It is a Greek word, plerao. Plerao means filled completely, fullness, the sum total. It even means superabundance. So catch this. He wants every believer, everybody who's a believer here, raise your hand. He wants every believer to be not kind of filled, not every once in a while filled, not sometimes filled, but totally filled all the time with all the fullness of God. Wow. All the time. Now that takes spending time with Jesus and having a disciplined life. But that's God's will for us. That's his will for us. Paul prays for the Ephesian Christian to be filled with all the fullness of God. One commentator says of this prayer of Paul for the church, I like this, quote, no prayer that has ever been framed has uttered a bolder request. To understand this better, let's draw a picture. I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine your soul is like a house, and it's filled with rooms and cabinets and closets and drawers and all these different things, okay? It's a multi-roomed house. That's your soul. And this is true. Your soul is. Now, the typical Christian allows the Lord to come into some of those rooms while withholding access to others. And if you get to know them, you'll find those rooms too. If you get to know a person for very long, you're going to see the rooms where they've let Jesus in, and you're going to run up against the same room the Holy Ghost runs up against, and as they won't let him in, they don't let you in either because that's the padlocked room. Some of the rooms, the ones that aren't padlocked, they're bright, they're cheery, the curtains are open, the sun is shining in, the floors are swept clean, and it's great to walk into those rooms as you get to know that person. It's great to spend time with that person when you're in those rooms. But then, other rooms are those areas of our lives, padlocked, there's a sign on the door, do not enter, dude, or do that. You're not coming in here. God doesn't get in here. And you're not getting in here. Because this one's padlocked. This one is closed. Because let me tell you the truth, I'm scared to death of anybody in this room. Nobody's coming into this room. Because in that room are pain, woundings, hurts, habits, hang-ups. Very, very sensitive to touch. 
because there's things in those rooms that aren't fixed. And so we're real good to let the other rooms remain open, and we're real content to let just go to heaven with most of the rooms open, and the padlock rooms, let's just ignore those. Somebody abused you, disappointed you, betrayed you, hurt you, some sin in your life. Cobwebs lie in the ceiling of these rooms. The floors are dusty and dirty. The curtains are drawn and the room is dark. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because I guarantee you there's not a person in this room that doesn't have, or in this room, that doesn't have one of those rooms. Because those rooms being captured by God is one of the great, great challenges of Jesus Christ when he comes into your life. Because he knows as long as there's those locked up, padded, locked rooms that you're limited. And his power in your life is limited. And you're not going to experience wholeness until those rooms are opened up and he comes in. And boy, it takes guts. It's scary to open up those rooms. Oh, Lord, nobody's been in here in years and years. I don't even go in there. I just try to focus on the opened rooms. But I'm going to tell you, church, when you get saved, God has a goal. Now, listen carefully to me, because some of you have been experiencing God trying to get into these rooms, and you've been in a battle, and you've rebuked the devil and bound and loosed and fasted and prayed and named it and claimed it and blabbed it and grabbed it. But what you don't understand is what you're going through is God's trying to get in that room. That room explains why you do some of the things you do. That room explains why you're bound in some of the areas you're bound. For us to experience all the fullness of God, we've got to allow Jesus into these rooms. Now, let me tell you what it might require. It might require changing your thinking about some things in order to come into alignment with God's Word. It may require repentance. You've got to trust Jesus to unlock that door and go in and clean it up. And the day is going to come when you're going to realize, okay, I, I've been walking for some years now. Now here's a line in the sand. And I'm very aware that if I'm going to go beyond and walk into everything God's got for me, I have got to deal with that room. And that's when it gets really real because God knew the room was there when he saved you. He watched the room happen. He knows why it's padlocked. So you need to be healed of, of pain. You need to be delivered. You need to come to grips with a habit pattern and, and the reason for the habit pattern is what's in that room. Oh, boy. Remember that story? Well, no, I, I, I'm going to move on. How many of you are aware of the rooms? You know the room. I, boy, I had some. I had a lot of them. I had some major ones. Probably still do. And I realized if I shut God out of the room, the room only gets worse. 
Sometimes that room is opened up when you just forgive. You just forgive. You forgive. And the padlock comes off. Okay? So whatever it takes, let the Lord into the room. Now, we may, not, we may need to trust the Lord with a deep wound that we've carefully guarded. But whatever it takes, Jesus must gain entrance into every room in order for us to experience all the fullness of God. A pastor of long ago advised his congregation, give all you know of yourself to all you know of God. Give all you know of yourself to all you know of God. And he will set you free. Now, once the Lord gains entrance into those rooms, you will ask yourself this question, why did I wait so long? Because he'll open the curtains, light will flood the room, the floor will be swept, cobwebs of guilt and condemnation brushed away, and you'll be one more step closer to being, what everyone, filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I love the final verse in this chapter, and I pray it all the time when I'm believing God for big things, and I'm believing God for big things now. I pray this all the time. It's my favorite. Paul is closing out his prayer for the church, and he closes out with a doxology. Doxology literally means a word of glory, a word of glory. Doxologies are short, spontaneous proclamations of praise to God. They usually have three parts. Part one, the ascribing of glory, glory, that doxa, doxology, doxa is the Greek for glory, doxa, doxology. So it's the ascribing of glory. Second, it's the one to whom the glory is ascribed. And third, in Paul's doxologies, they always end with forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, worlds without end. So let's read it together. Ready? Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Now the words exceeding abundantly above mean far more over and above, excelling, surpassing. Now, I want you to catch this. God is able to do far more, over and above, surpassing what you can think in your brain on your best day. The prefix of the Greek word is from where we get the word hyper, 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 hyper means abundant. It is beyond all measure. I remember when I was a kid, and I'm really dating myself here. When I was a kid, a movie came out that, that Fred McMurray was in. It was called The Son of Flubber. How many of you remember The Son of Flubber? So that's all baby boomers. Son of Flubber, it was just a neat Fred McMurray movie. You know, this, this, this stuff was made called Flubber. And when you put Flubber like under a car, it would cause the car to float and travel through the air. And so flubber was this supernatural material that made anything it got on hyper, or powerful, strong. And I remember I'm, 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 I tell my mother, Mom, you've got to take me to see this. I was like eight years old. Can I please go see the son of flubber? And my mom took me. And do you know that in, at the popcorn area, they were selling flubber. And I got this mass of green stuff, this flubber. Now, after flubber came out, came the Super Bowl. Remember the Super Bowl? Now, the thing about the Super Bowl was 
it was compressed so tight that when you hit the ground with it, it bounced way beyond a normal ball. You could throw it into a bling, 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 bling. So it's sort of like compressed flubber. Now, I thought of that. The, that Super Bowl is like what he's talking about. Exceeding, abundantly, hyper, above, beyond, blessing, bouncing around. I'm trying to find words here. It's a super ball promise. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above. Boing, 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 Flubber. Supernatural elevation. Supernatural power, supernatural results beyond what you can think of. It's beyond all measure, the highest form of comparison imaginable. The word is used in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, same word. He says, Paul says, night and day I'm praying exceedingly. He, mean, he means, look at his prayer life here. He means beyond anything you can imagine, I'm praying for you. That we may see your face and, and perfect what is lacking in your faith. I have super abundant prayer for you. He says it again in chapter 5, verse th- uh, 13 of 1 Thessalonians. He says, I want you to esteem. He's talking about their pastoral leadership. He said, I want you to esteem them very highly. That word is from the same Greek word. Superabundant, very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. So I want you to notice in closing that the limiting factor is not what we can ask for or imagine. That's not the limiting factor. The limiting factor is the power, dunamis, that is working, energeo, we get energy from that. God's word is energeo, it is working, it is energy in us. Whose power? God's power. Power. So Paul prayed for the Ephesians in, one, in chapter 1, verse 19, that the eyes of their hearts were to be opened to his incomparably great power that's working in them. So there's no limit to God's power. Can we say that together? There's no limit to God's power. Our ability to comprehend God's power and his desire to bless is limited. And that's the only thing that limits the scope of our prayers. But God's power is infinite, limitless. I'm going to close with Annie Johnson's, uh, Annie Johnson Flint's favorite hymn. She, she wrote this hymn, He Giveth More Grace. Let's stand and we're going to read it together. And, and this, this hymn goes right along with Ephesians 3.20. Ready? His love has no limit. His grace hath no measure. His power hath no boundary known unto man. But out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Isn't that good stuff? All right. A little bit left, but we're good. Next time, we're going to look at three important commands out of chapter four. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that you have given us so much 
And Lord, I want to pray tonight. I just feel impressed to pray that for those of us who have padlocked doors that are keeping out the blessing of God and the healing of God because we're afraid. I pray, Lord, that you will grace us if we need to forgive, to forgive. Repent, we'll repent. Obey, we'll obey. But I pray that, Lord, you will gain entrance into those rooms that we might experience all the fullness of God. 